Welcome to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. It's a very special place, and to find out some of the history, I tagged along with Ros Stanwell Smith, who trained at the school and regularly takes visitors on walks around the main building in Capel Street in London's West End to tell them about some of the famous people from the history of healthcare who are connected with the London School. Okay, everybody, um, just gather over here. Everybody for the walk, that is. <laughs> anyway, I just introduced myself. My name is Ross Stanmore Smith. Um, has anyone been on a walk with me before? All right, okay. You're all, all new. Okay, many, many years ago, I trained at the School of Hygiene in the early 80s. It's a very long time ago. It has changed a lot. But of course, um, the school is even older than me. Um, it started at the end of the 19th century, and it started as a quarantine hospital down in the docks, um, particularly for the sailors um, and for the technicians and the engineers, and indeed the doctors and nurses who were going abroad, because they were picking up tropical diseases that no one had ever seen before, at least didn't really understand. Great Britain needed tropical disease experts, which is a good reason why the school was set up. And on Ros Stanwell Smith's walk, we soon heard how much of the progress made in improving health, not only in Britain but around the world, has some sort of connection with the London School. Many of the pioneers of public health are actually named on the school building. I asked Ros to tell me about some of these heroes. But first, one who isn't on the outside of the building, but has a beautiful new lecture hall inside, named after him, John Snow. Dr. John Snow is a hero both of anaesthesia and of public health. Really, quite a remarkable man. Born in 1813, um, and he came down to London to work as a doctor. And he was very interested in what caused cholera. He'd seen some of the early outbreaks up in the northeast of England. And it was while he was in London when he actually started to investigate a major outbreak of cholera that he discovered the association with water, and in particular um, that it was the more contaminated water. So um, he not only helped to lead the way to clean water and sanitation by that um, remarkable deduction, um, he also predated the germ theory by many years. Sydenham, tell me about him. Thomas Sydenham is the earliest name on the walls of the school. He was working in the 1600s and indeed um, helped to treat uh, people in the Civil War. Uh, many doctors and surgeons were dragooned into the Civil War and got their experience there. And he's known for his treatise on fevers. And he's often called the English Hippocrates because of his wisdom and his emphasis on observing how disease progresses. And at a time when they were dishing out any kind of treatment, um, he was a, a lone voice of logic. Jenner is one of the names appearing on the wall too. Yes, Edward Jenner, who was um, mainly um, a country doctor from Gloucestershire, but he'd observed that the dairymaids, um, they got some pustules on their hands when the cows had cowpox, but then they, they seemed to be immune from smallpox. And he made the great leap through, which is what almost all modern vaccination is based, that you could use a related disease to protect against a more killer disease. And so he was the one who introduced cowpox inoculation um, as a safe um, inoculation against smallpox. Tell me about Lind. James Lind, um, there were in fact two Lynds, but the famous Lind is the one who um, was a naval physician who did a trial on the causes of scurvy. 
As soon as the voyages got longer, people became short of fruit and vegetables. Of course, we know now, because we know about vitamin C. But that was only isolated in the 19th, 20th century. So they didn't know about it in the 1700s. But he did a trial of all the different things that were proposed as cures and showed conclusively, although it was very small numbers, two um, had the citrus fruits, that that was the way to prevent scurvy. And we'll hear more from Roz in a minute. But first, I'd like to mention one of my favourite health pioneers, Richard Doll, who, together with Bradford Hill, also at the school, discovered the link between smoking and lung cancer. He knew that the only way to find the causes of disease was by collecting information from thousands of patients and comparing this with data from healthy people. Virginia Berridge, Professor of History at the London School of Hygiene, told me how Doll elegantly harnessed the mathematical power of statistics. Statistics in medicine was not so usual um, at the time that he was working. So I think he was very important in terms of turning medicine towards much more of an evidence-based focus. And of course he discovered the link between smoking and respiratory disease by a landmark survey, didn't he? He worked with Austin Bradford Hill, who was a very well-known statistician on, on the staff of the London School, and together they had funding from the Medical Research Council, and they discovered an association between smoking and lung cancer. He was always very careful to say it was an association and not causation, and that was something where they'd not expected to to find that connection. There were all sorts of theories milling around that possibly the rise in lung cancer was due to the rise in car traffic. Um, it might have been due to tarmacking the roads. So it was an area where, in a sense, the conclusions arose from, from the evidence from the work which they did. Can you give me some idea of the size of the task? Because literally they had to interview thousands and thousands of people, didn't they, to, in order to get the statistics right to really prove this association? Yes. In those days, I think doing that, that sort of work was enormously difficult by comparison with, with the present day, you know, when you just press a button on a computer and you'd have your data. Um, in those days, I think they, the, the, the work was much harder in his introduction to the presentation of the results, he talks about how they used hospital almoners to collect some of the data. So very, very different structure in the way in which research was done in those days. He very much set the scene, though, for understanding lifestyle and investigating lifestyle as a cause of ill health. And uh, I remember 10 or 15 years ago, he published in the BMJ about the natural lifespan being a lot longer than we think. It's not three score years and 10. It's a lot longer as long as you eat the right things and do the right things. Well, I think public health was changing at the time that he was working. The whole burden of disease was changing away from deaths from epidemic and infectious disease to people dying from chronic illness, things like cancer, heart disease. Um, and Dole's research and his work was a key part of that changeover in public health um, and the way we think about lifestyle and the way we behave in life uh, as key determinants of our, our, our health and our illness. Now, although Dahl was a doctor and doctors are trained to treat people who are ill, much of the emphasis of his work, however, was in preventing illness, wasn't it? 
Yes, I mean, he wasn't the traditional doctor who, who had beds in, in a hospital, who had a ward round. And I think that was one of the issues when he went to move from the School of Hygiene to Oxford. Um, he wasn't the traditional sort of doctor. And he was very much more concerned uh, with the prevention of, of ill health, yes. So what is his significance here at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine? I think his significance is uh, that he was one of the key figures in, in public health in the 20th century. He was part of a change in public health towards a completely new way of looking um, about illness and health and what one could do to prevent illness and poor health. And preventing illness and poor health around the world is very much the mission of the London School today where any day of the week you can probably find the world's biggest concentration of scientists dedicated to keeping the average world citizen alive longer by bringing enlightened knowledge from carefully researched evidence. More now from our guide to the school's historical connections, Ros Stanwell-Smith, who told me about anaesthetics. Anaesthesia is celebrated in the um, area because um, the first anaesthetic in Great Britain, the first general anaesthetic, um, was given um, in Gower Street, um, a few doors away from where the school is now. Um, the school itself, although it has very wide interests, not just in infection, but of course in general public health, um, has never had a clinical basis. They haven't had patients treated there. But um, as soon as anaesthesia had been discovered or used by a dentist in the States, um, news of it came over by the next sailing ship um, we're talking 1846, there was October in America, reached um, Britain by December, and then it was tried out in um, Gower Street. And we think it was probably the first general anaesthetic in Europe. By? It was done by a surgeon called Robert Liston, who was known for his speed, because before anaesthesia, you had to be very, very fast. And the patient was held down, um, and you, the surgeon would very, very quickly do the procedure. Amputations was a very common one, because if you got an infection in your leg, you died. No antibiotics, of course. And then your assistants would very rapidly um, tie it up. If you were in the battlefield or on a ship, um, they would apply tar. And where is this celebrated on the walls of the LSHTM? Um, anesthesia isn't celebrated on the actual walls of the, of the School of Hygiene, but um, there's a house in Gower Street where um, a chap called James Robinson lived, and he was um, friendly with an American, so he was one of the first to hear about it, because um, when it came over the news. And then um, further up at University College, um, or at a branch of what was going to be University College Hospital, that was where Robert Liston gave the first um, demonstration. I have to ask you about Chadwick, who's on the front of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Yes, Edwin Chadwick, who was another great hero of public health, had a very interesting life, trained as a, a lawyer, wasn't very wealthy, but was um, supported by Jeremy Bentham, who of course was a philosopher and the um, person who founded utilitarianism, or what we know as the happiness of the greatest number. And that obviously influenced Chadwick, who in many ways was a, a very cool and logically thinking man. He was very, very clever, but he obviously um, cared about the, the health of the, the public. And when he was working for the Poor Commission, um, he did a survey of the conditions of the labouring poor. And when this was published in 1842, it caused great shock. 
that at a time of relative wealth for Britain and the rise of the middle classes, there was still this great underclass of poverty. And Ros told us on the visitors' walk around the school that in the heyday of the British Empire, the rich were very rich, but the poor were very poor. And I want to mention a heroine of British healthcare, the nurse Florence Nightingale, the lady with the lamp. Here's Virginia Berridge again. She came from a wealthy family,、um, but being from the period, you know, when when she was born and, and brought up, it wasn't envisaged that she would have a career or do anything very practical. And in fact, early in her life, she was quite depressed. I think possibly because of this lack, you know, the fact that she was an intelligent person who who didn't see much of a future for herself. Um, and um, eventually, of course, she found her her mission in life、uh, with her work in the Crimea、uh, and the changes that she wrought in nursing.、Um, and also, I think, became a very important public figure, a campaigner, a person who promoted、uh, a statistical approach to to health.、Um, and she did that、um, despite、uh, continuing ill health and depression. Uh, subsequent to her return from the Crimea. Now the Crimean War was a terrible war,、uh, enormous British losses, a bloody war if ever there was one. What exactly did Florence Nightingale do there? Well, she went out to the hospital at、um, Scutari、uh, and found things in, in a pretty poor way,、uh, poorly organised, and、um, the soldiers suffering as a result. And I think she brought order、um, and a degree of. Sanitary, a degree of cleanliness、um, to to the way in which、uh, soldiers were being treated, and also treated the soldiers were treated with compassion in a way in which they hadn't been before. Indeed, the emotional dimension of nursing presumably was regarded by Florence Nightingale as very important, and, and I think some of the soldiers really fell in love with her, didn't they? Yes, I think there's still something that people call the Nightingale effect.、Um, when a patient、um, falls for or becomes very emotionally involved with their caregiver, <laughs> but scientifically, what did she contribute? Because、uh, we hear that she didn't go along with the germ theory. No, she was a believer in the scientific, the the, the mere, more of a believer in the miasmatic、um, theory of disease, which was that disease was caused by pollution in the atmosphere rather than by specific germs. So she、um, was worked quite often with Edwin Chadwick,、uh, the pioneer of public health reform in Britain, who also had similar theories, and she maintained those theories、um, until quite late in her life and. We would say now that that was wrong,、um, that that wasn't a correct interpretation of what was causing disease. But in fact, the the wrong theory led to the right actions in some ways because it led to a focus on sanitation, it led to a focus on、uh, cleansing the environment, on things like hand washing, which of course are now coming back into、uh, discussion in public health today, and people are seeing them as increasingly important. Well, the London School at the time didn't think she was worthy enough to put on the side of the building. What do you make of that? Well, I think the、uh, I, this may be a folk myth, but certainly when you look at the frieze around the building and you see the names of the great heroes of public health, they are all heroes and not heroines. And it's said that Florence Nightingale's name isn't there because. Uh, Nightingale was too long to inscribe, but in fact the name of Pettenkofer is there, which I think is as long, if not longer.
And the name of Pettenkoffer brings me to Ros Stanwell Smith again, who gave me the back story on him. Like Florence, he didn't believe that horrible infections were caused by microbes, and he took a big risk to his own health on one occasion just to show people just how strongly he rejected that idea. Max van Pettenkoffer was a hero in many ways of public health. But he was also an anti-hero because he didn't believe in the germ theory. Now, he actually drank some bacterium, didn't he? Um, he actually drank um, a cholera bacteria. Oh, God. He drank um, Robert Koch, who was the great German bacteriologist who um, discovered the cholera bacterium, sent him a preparation of cholera bacteria in a test tube. And in those days, they banded these things about. Um, anyway, we had a bit of cotton wool in the, in the top, we can only hope. But anyway, Pettenkoffer, who didn't believe in germ theory and thought that germs were spread by the miasma theory, in particular he thought it was by bad water and bad earth and, you know, sort of sewage kind of uh, spread, he drank it um, at one gulp and the annoying thing for all the germ theorists was that he didn't get ill. Now his name is here on the side of the London School. Yes. His name is here, you might say, well, surely, if he, if he didn't believe in the germ theory, he was rather not modern enough. But in fact, in many ways, he was modern. He was really a chemist. Now, public health in those days was a very wide spectrum. Um, he had started off, indeed, wanting to be an actor. He was apprenticed to the court apothecary. And um, he also um, wanted um, to, to start training in public health. So he started the first Institute of Public Hygiene um, in the world in um, 1879. So he was a hero in many ways. Now, can you tell me just a, a tiny bit about the origins of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine? There is an American connection, isn't there? Yes. Um, we had um, a quarantine ship down in the docks um, at the end of the 19th century, and if you like, the early origins of the school are when teaching about infectious diseases started to become more regulated down on that ship. But um, if we move forward to the 1920s, when um, the John Hopkins School over in the States um, had a school of public health but felt that what was needed was a, a comparable, um, perhaps even more international school over in Europe, and the obvious place to locate it was London, of course at that time very much the centre of the world, and remember we're on the zero meridian um, of zero longitude, um, but the Rockefeller Foundation provided a very generous grant which really enabled the school to get started, and um, it's, it's one of the reasons why there's always been a very strong Anglo-American association with the school. It's a bit magical. And Bloomsbury is the area of London, the rather select area, where we're standing right at this moment. Yes, and they, they call it the um, home of progressive causes. So many things have started in Bloomsbury. I mean, it's really hard to list them. I mean, the, the um, first locomotive, the first university that didn't rely on um, religion, um, didn't require you to have a um, Church of England religion to go, the first college, a university college for women, the first time the mass of the earth was weighed, the first anaesthetic. Um, it, it, the, the list of firsts goes on and on. The pre-Raphaelites, the artists, that wild bunch of artists, they were founded here. Lots of progression with um, religion and ideas. Then you've got the, the, um, the Bloomsberries, 
as they called themselves, Virginia Woolf and all that gang who um, were living in Bloomsbury in the early 1900s and that first half of the 20th century when um, so many ideas were blossoming. John Maynard Keynes, the economist, was one of the Bloomsbury's um, and indeed he went on to influence the New Deal over in the States. So really a very remarkable area and people have said you know, there is, must be something about it. Louis Pasteur, of course, is very much celebrated here at the London School. Oh, yes. I mean, Pasteur um, was a, very much a leading light of early bacteriology and virology, but also a vaccination. A brilliant man, although it'll cheer students up to know that he was described as a very mediocre student. Uh, it's very interesting, isn't it? Some of the greatest pioneers didn't do well at school. I always think um, maybe it's because they're original thinkers and so they ask difficult questions. Um, but he um, helped to develop um, the first rabies uh, vaccine. Um, he... Um, he discovered the efficacy of attenuated vaccines, which was a huge breakthrough. Attenuated vaccine, of course, is one that has been deliberately um, altered to make it less um, um, pathogenic, invasive. So um, Pasteur has a link with Britain. I'm always telling people when we do the walk down to the pub that he helped to save the British beer industry, certainly in London, because his, um, he knew Whitbread, who, who was the maker of, of beers, and he came over and Whitbread was having a problem with the beer going off and Pasteur um, worked out a way of, of pasteurizing the beer. Um, so pasteurization, of course, was one of his huge discoveries where you heat something to destroy the bacteria in it and that helped to save the beer on that occasion and Whitbread was very grateful. Obviously, we don't make a lot of it in London. That was Ros Stanmore-Smith. I hope you've enjoyed our wander through the history of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I'm Peter Goodwin of Audio News, and you can hear regular updates on news stories from the school in our podcasts. Goodbye for now.